Do I sound loud enough? Sounds loud enough, right? All right. Who's ready to have a strong brain tonight? All right, so welcome to Nerd Night, Colorado Springs. And let's see, this is a nice Nerd Night thing. I know it's hard to look at, but the sun that's coming through there, I can't tell it to go away. And we don't want it to. The sun's nice. It's a nice thing. So let's see, uh, we'll, we'll do the best we can. So Nerd Night has a bit of an identity crisis. We always say be there and be square. But in the 1990s and early 2000s, it kind of went through a little bit of a change. And it was more called like the Discovery Channel with beer. But how many of us have the Discovery Channel now? Yeah. So now recently I was talking to a millennial Gen Zer, and she said Nerd Night is more like boozy TED Talks. So make sure you have your beer because here at Nerd Night we think that the drinking and the learning go hand in hand. So that's why you have two hands. All right. So I am and over here my lovely wife and partner. Maritza Aguilera, and this is us at the Nerd Night in Miami, the night that I asked her to marry me. Yeah. So Nerd Night means a lot to us. Um, so Nerd Night is in over 100 cities worldwide, so if you're traveling out in the world, actually I was going to go to the Nerd Night in Miami last week, but it got rained out because it was outside, yeah. So it's in over 100 cities, so if you are traveling out and about, look for Nerd Night and go nerd out with some people from all around the world. So how many of you, is it your first time here tonight by show of hands? All right. We have a lot of first timers like the past three months. Um, I know it, excuse me, excuse me, went down the wrong hole. I know what you first timers are thinking. You're all thinking, if I had to present in front of a room of drunk people, what would I present? Smart drunk people. Smart drunk people. What would I present about? Who's thinking? Jordan's thinking this. <laughs> Gardening. So if you would like to be a Nerd Night presenter, all you need to do is you can email us at nerdnightcos at gmail.com or you can tap myself or Marita on the shoulder and we will be happy to listen to what you would like to nerd out about. Is this our contest for tonight? Do you want to? Hey nerds! All right, so for tonight, we have a contest. We like to do these cute little contests. So for tonight, if you follow us on Instagram at, at nerdnightcos and also leave a comment on one of the pictures, you will be entered to win a ticket to our big summer shindig called Best of the West Wing Fest. You do not want to miss this event. So the community is going to come together. We already have 15 wing restaurants that are going to be going head to head. We're actually going to be on Fox 21 Morning News tomorrow with five of those restaurants. So if you guys watch the news in the morning, tune in early um, and uh, you'll, you'll be winning one ticket to, to our event. So uh, slide. Boom, there you go. So follow and comment on our Instagram, Nerd Night and N-I-T-E at uh, C-O-S. And uh, yeah. Last, head and 
I'll call the winner after. Must be present. Must be present. All right. Must be present to win. Because <laughs> you can be present like meditating, but that doesn't count. All right. So you could also stalk us on our website, which is cos.nerdnight.com. If you look over here, this is the video of when I asked her to marry me. So if you want to indulge in that, by all means, go ahead. Um, we have another community event that we do. Heather McDaniel spoke at the last one. You did a fantastic job, by the way. And that one is called Memoirs, True Stories Unfiltered. So if we're going to talk about energy, if Nerd Night is like, yay, fun, we're learning, Memoirs is like, oh my goodness, this is super emotional. And that's going to be at Kinship Landing on Monday, June 27th. And the theme for this month's Memoirs is What is Normal? Uh, again, coming this summer, Best of the West Wing Fest. I know a lot of you like chicken wings, and we're going to find out who makes the best ones. And let's put our hands together for our host venue, Kawadi, who lets us use this place so that we can all nerd out. And of course, thank you, Colorado Springs. So give yourselves a hand for being amazing and wanting to be smart and drink at the same time. <laughs> So tonight, we've got presentation number one, the Trillion Bottle Challenge, the fight to say goodbye to single-use plastics and protect our planet, which Best of the West Wingfest is trying to be a part of this as well. Presentation number two, the story of the flying ember, wildfires and our natural world by Lisa Hatfield. Oh, yes. And the first one is Angela Lehman. I forgot to say your name. I was so excited about being part of saving you know, less plastic balls. <laughs> and then presentation number three is what the heck is Houston? All right, I said that right. And that is by Grant Dewey, who is the executive director of the Western Museum of Mining and Industry. All that. And yes, that is going to be by Grant Dewey. So with that... Let's get our nerd hats on and let's welcome Angela Lehman to the stage and she will tell us how to use less plastic bottles. All right. We're going to multitask so I can drink my beer and do this. Down is forward. I've got this. Hi, guys. How are you doing tonight? Oh, well, this is my first time at Nerd Night, so I'm so excited to be here and talking to you guys. Uh, my name is Angela. I am the regional manager of the Source H2O, and in my other half of life, <laughs> um, I am also a musician with Crystallized Band. Uh, so if you ever want to come jam with us, come say hi later. I'll give you our, our details. Um, but tonight we're here to talk about water, which is the source of all life on our planet, um, and our Trillion Bottle Challenge. So one of our missions, we're super passionate about improving people's lives through access to better water. And so we are on a mission to eliminate one trillion plastic water bottles by 2030. You may now cheer if you'd like. I know, I know, it's such a good goal, right? We think so. Um, anyway, so let's talk a little bit about water. So, I have to use my cheat sheet because I can't have memorized all these numbers. On average, our planet uses 10 billion cases of water per year, uh, which is a lot of cases of water when you think about it. But the more concerning part is that 85% of those, despite recycling, despite all of these things that we do every day to work toward that, end up in our landfills and our oceans and our rivers and our mountains um, and also in our food, which is yummy and delicious because I like eating plastic, as I'm sure you do, right? <laughs> 
So this is a fact that I find surprising because it's a side of things that I'd never thought about when we think about sustainability. When you guys buy one bottle of water, it is the equivalent of filling that bottle of water with a quarter of oil in order to produce one bottle of water. So the U.S. buys 62 billion plus bottles of water every year. And that means there's 20 million barrels of crude oil per year just in producing plastic water bottles. 20 million barrels of crude oil. To put that into perspective, that's, over, that's enough oil to fuel 1 million cars per year just to produce plastic water bottles, which we use once and then throw away. It's kind of crazy when you think about it, right? Literally just to use something that we're going to throw away that's going to create all of these impacts on our ecosystem after the fact. So Anthony Hink said plastic will be the main ingredient in all of our children's recipes. And once upon a time, probably said, like, oh, that's a little bit dramatic. Like, you know, I mean, sure, there's plastic everywhere, but we recycle, right? And everything is good, and our water comes from the mountains. Um, but we're actually finding now, scientists are finding when you test fresh snow at the top of the mountain, there are microplastics in it. Um, how many of you guys would eat a credit card? Nobody? Are you sure? Come on, nobody wants to eat a credit card. Maybe if it was a dare. Like, how much money would it be worth to you to eat a credit card? No. Okay. All right, buddy. Well, the average American who consumes either water or tap water for a week will consume as much plastic as a credit card in one week. In one week. I know. I know. That one freaking gets me every time. Every single time. And what's crazy about that is um, a lot of times we buy bottled water, right, because we want the cleanest water available to us. We think that by buying bottled water, we're purchasing something that's going to be great for our health and good for our bodies and things like that. But unfortunately, the reality is that a lot of times we're only buying bottled tap water. Now, that's not true of every bottled water company, but a lot of them were just buying bottled tap water. So um, I'm going to bring up one of our water techs. Um, his name is Scott, and he is going to tell you a little bit more about what is in our water and um, also where our water comes from, and the shorts. I'll take, I'll take short questions after the water. So, yeah, so I'm Scott. Um, I tested water all over the state. I'm a fifth-generation local, so I am invested in Colorado and the health of our residents here. So you guys talked a little bit about five grams of plastic. So this is some water from the east side of Colorado Springs from my neighborhood. And I'm going to pass this around, and I want you to see the stuff floating in the bottom. Don't spill it on yourself. There's little lids on them, but be careful. Look at the crud in the bottom of those vials. That's from, un that's from city water right there. The utility company sends that to you. Each and every one of your houses gets water similar to this. What I did to it is I put two chemicals in there that shows you the solids that they missed. And you're probably thinking, like, why would the utility company send us garbage with water? And it's realistically the technology that they're using. They're using 50-year-old technology to treat 21st century water problems. And sometimes mistakes happen. And that's why we end up with grams of plastic in your stomach every single week. So realistically, um, some of the stuff that you're going to see in there, some of it's going to be plastic, some of it's going to be organics. It's disgusting. If you look at that and aren't a little disgusted today, you're not in the right place. That, the only proper response to that is gross. Okay. Um, so let's go, let's go to the next slide here, Angela, if you can for me. 
So uh, what's in your water? So the EPA, they recommend a couple things. The EPA is part of the federal government. They recommend every homeowner get their water tested every single year because you never quite know what's going to show up in your water. And so we test for a big variety of different things. There's a whole bunch of stuff on that list there. You may not even recognize the names. Most of them are chemicals, disinfecting byproducts, or things that occur naturally in nature. And under low levels, they're fine for us. But the problem is our water in Colorado, we're running out of clean water. So uh, any of you who have lived in Colorado for a couple of years, we get a little less snow every year, right? And that's where most of our water comes from in the mountains. Uh, when the snow melts, it comes downhill and it comes to our city. And the further west, further east from the city you go, the more recycled your water is. You're probably asking me, Scott, recycled water? What is that? In the water industry, we call that toilet to tap. And it's exactly what it sounds like. So we're at fresh water here in Colorado. The Colorado River was just put on the most endangered river list in the country because we have so little snowpack here in Colorado. What that means to each and every one of you is every drop of water you use in your house for cooking, bathing, washing, all of that, it's most likely highly recycled. So that means when your neighbor's done with it and flushes the toilet, it goes to a treatment plant and comes right back to your neighborhood. And in the next 10 years, there's going to be an endless cycle of water from Monument all the way to Widefield, and the water's just going to get recycled over and over and over again. I'm seeing a bunch of gross looks on your faces. That's the appropriate answer to that. Because if these mistakes are already happening in those little vials, what's going to happen in the next 10 years? What mistakes are going to happen? What's going to get sent to you and your house right there? Okay, um, This is a little example, kind of what it looks like. Um, so one of our partners, uh, we've got some great partners in the water industry. Has anybody heard of the Environmental Working Group? And it's okay. We've got some yeses. So the Environmental Working Group is a thirdparty.org. So that means they're in it to not make a profit. But they go across the country and they test city water. They use technology that we don't even have available. And what they do is they publicize the public results. So whatever's in your zip code, you can find out exactly what's in your neighborhood's water. They'll give you a detailed list of all the contaminants that they find. And they bring those contaminants to a medical professional and say, hey, we found this stuff in their water. What is healthy for human consumption? And then they'll list that on the website for you, too. So you get third-party, unbiased, unbought information about what's in your water. And you should all be a little nervous about what's in your water. But the best part about that website is it tells you which technologies permanently remove the garbage from your water. So there's light at the end of the tunnel. The technology exists to fix everybody's water. The utility Companies just don't and can't afford that technology. That's the thing. So it's up to each and every one of you to treat your water or work with a water partner to help pick out the technology that's best for you and your family. Okay? Because everybody deserves clean water. Each and every one of you, even your neighbor that you don't like, they deserve clean water too. Thank you, friends. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We were going to pull up and show you some of the stuff from the water at at where I live, um, but I can't get it to pull up right now. So anyways, a few things, if you guys hop on that website, and it's different everywhere, right? But one of the reasons that we partner with the EWG is that they are a private company, and so they are not funded by um, their private company, essentially. So they're biased. We're working with leading scientists and doctors to give you information on what's safe for you to be consuming and bathing in on a daily basis. So a few of the things, just to give you guys an example, um, that test really high in the water where we live. 
96 times the amount of arsenic that they feel is safe for you to be consuming on a daily basis. Uh, 50 times the amount of radiation, radium, that you feel they feel like you should be consuming on a daily basis. And a whole bunch of disinfectant byproducts. So if you ever hop on one of those, anything in the disinfectant byproduct, which basically means that um, when we're treating water, things, they're bleaching it, right? So putting chlorine in, when that combines with something else in your water supply, it's creating some sort of disinfectant byproduct. So I recommend hopping on there, checking it out. I'm sorry, I can't show it to you right now, but some interesting information for you. Um, back to this. So one thing that surprised me the most when I started learning about what was in my water, um, and I'll tell you guys, when I first got my water tested, I mentioned I'm a musician, so I was like in the other room stringing my guitar. Like, I don't have time to deal with this. I don't need to get my water tested. Everything is good. Like, I'm busy. They're like, just come in and listen. Just learn a little bit with me. So I'm restringing my guitar, and they're doing these water tests. And they're like, come look, come look. And I was like, what are you telling me? This is insane. So there was twice as much. You go to the pool, right? And you come home, and you shower, and you wash the chlorine off of your body, right? There's twice as much chlorine in the water at my house as there is in a swimming pool. So I'm washing it off to put even more on my body. So things like that are really interesting. And then the fact that really gets me every time is that we actually absorb 64% more contaminants in a 10 minute shower than we do in the water that we drink all day. 64% more contaminants in a 10 minute shower than in the water we drink all day. So we're always thinking about what we're drinking and consuming and bottled water, right? But the reality is that our skin is the biggest organ on our bodies. And so we're absorbing those chemicals, we're inhaling them. Um, kids with asthma, a lot of times, asthma or psoriasis, things like that, um, are often worsened by the type of water that they're bathing in. So that's the fact that kind of gets me every time. Um, earlier, Scott was talking a little bit about outdated safety Saturn's standards. So think for a second about 20 years ago. Where were you? What did your life look like 20 years ago? Now think about how many new pharmaceuticals have been invented. What type of cell phone did you have 20 years ago? What type of car did you drive 20 years ago? So there have been no new contaminants added to our Safe Water Drinking Act in 20 years. In 20 years. And there's so many new chemicals and pharmaceuticals. And by the way, like um, Bobby Joe or whoever your neighbor is, a little bit of whatever he's taking from his medicinal cabinet is making its way into the toilet and it's making its way right back around to your water tap because we don't, unfortunately, the water companies don't have the technology to remove that consistently. The, a funny story that I learned about um, during the opioid epidemic, they actually found out crocodiles were getting high because of all the opioids that were getting flushed down the toilet. And so similar things, you know, those are getting passed back along to us. And so the fact that we haven't had updates to that in 20 years is pretty crazy to me. Another thing that's crazy is that the maximum contaminant levels for a lot of the things that are already in that safety act haven't been updated in 50 years. And we have a ton of changes to um, medicine and science. Think of all the things that have changed in the last 50 years, but yet we haven't updated those maximum contaminant levels. So that's why we say it's always good to get your water tested because unfortunately, while yes, 
the water is being tested other places, it isn't necessarily being tested for everything that could still be impacting our health and impacting our lives. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting, so Monument, uh, recently, they had to shut down one of the water treatment plants. Um, and the reason for that was that they were testing over the legal limit for radium. But what's crazier about that is the fact that you can test over the legal limit for a contaminant for four quarters before you have to notify the public of it. And so that means that people were drinking that water that was over the legal limit for radium for a year before the fact that anybody had to be notified that it wasn't actually safe for them to be drinking that water. Yeah, that's the right face. It's crazy. It's kind of crazy. Security in Whitefield, they're going through a lawsuit right now actually for uh, PFOS, uh, which are forever chemicals. Will never be, they will never go away in our water system unless they're intentionally removed, which I know we've got a talk coming up after this about fire. Uh, fire retardant is a big cause of PFOS in our water system, which goodness knows we need it, right? Like, thank you to the people who are helping keep us safe, but that's making it into our water tables, and that's not something we're going to be consuming on a daily basis. Uh, so I already told you guys a little bit about my water story, but um, I just wanted to give you a little more information. Years ago, I was the person who was like, drink the tap water. It's super great. Our water comes from the mountains. My dad would come to visit, and he'd be by, being by, he would be buying bottled water. And I was like, Dad, stop buying bottled water. At least I had that part right. But I was like, our tap water is so great here. Like, you should drink it all the time. And then they tested it, and I was like, oh, Another thing my dad was right about. So there's that. <laughs> so um, this is a picture of uh, one of my team members and I. Water 147 is one of our sister companies. Um, and just like we're partnering with Wingfest, uh, one of our goals in the Trillion Bottle Challenge um, is to partner with lots of different events across the front range. And so we're going out to these events to help provide clean water um, in a way that's sustainable. So you guys have all been to an event where there's like buckets filled with like plastic water bottles, right? And they're overflowing from everywhere. We'll help it, we're helping to change that, um, which has been really fun to be out in the community helping to give them clean water. Uh, but the, my favorite part of clean water is actually this thing called the platinum. Uh, which is something that we actually attach to a washing machine, and it creates all-natural disinfectants. It's a hospital-grade disinfectant, kind of like all-natural OxyClean, um, and that means that we can literally disinfect anything in our house with just water, and this is where I sound like an infomercial, but it's true, I swear to you. <laughs> so um, Scott is a yoga teacher, and I can tell you firsthand that his yoga mats are one of the most disgusting things after yoga class I've encountered. And we've tried everything that you can think of to make them not smell terrible. And we found nothing other than hospital grade disinfectant, which um, from the platinum water. We disinfect our kitchen, our bathroom, everything in our house with just water. So that means that we live a chemical free life. So we don't have any harsh chemicals. We're not putting any harsh chemicals back out in the environment through our detergents, through our laundry softeners, all of those types of things, because we just literally don't need it. And if you've never taken a clean water shower, I'll just leave it to you when you get to experience that one day. So I just say that um, to mean that it's worth taking the time to be educated on what's in your water, because if you've never taken the time to learn about it, it's just very eye-opening. And I had a massive paradigm shift when I got the chance to learn a little bit more about it, because I was the person who never cared before. 
So that leads me to something that we're getting ready to launch. I'm eagerly awaiting for mine because it's not here yet. But part of our Trillion Bottle Challenge is the Water Vault. Um, it's the world's first portable filtered water cooler. Uh, so it's an actual cooler first. So I imagine like a day on the lake, right? Like you're out boating and you've got all your drinks inside of it. You finish your drinks. You can drink your ice water. If you run out of water, you can throw it in the lake or the river or wherever you might be. And it will actually filter the water from any source that you're at. Um, so if you're out camping or anything like that, um, it has a shower attachment and a faucet attachment. So uh, I forgot my flyers on it today because I was lacking apparently. But we've got some different information around on uh, water testing and stuff like that. If you want to know more about the water ball, let us know. We also have handheld versions. So if you're looking for something that's an alternative to your traditional like plastic water bottles and you want something that are filter water everywhere you go, we have options for that as well too. Um, and if it's not a fit for you, we just ask, like, share it with a friend or family member who might, it might work really well for. If you live in an apartment, a lot of people in apartments, you really don't have an option to filter your water well. Um, this is a great option. It can be, it can plug into your wall. It can also be battery powered or solar powered. Um, so just help us spread the word because we're super excited about it. This is just a little bit of we partner with um, National Forest Foundation and Sea Change Agency are my two personal favorites. If you guys have never checked out the Sea Change Agency, I recommend it. They've actually been on Shark Week pretty recently. Um, they are really passionate about helping to balance the oceanic ecosystems, which I never knew that sharks had such a big impact on global global ecosystems, but they really do. So they're working to help save the sharks. We actually over a hundred thousand sharks are killed every day in fin hunting, fin hunting, and it's leading them to be at risk of extinction. So go check them out. They're super awesome. And um, that's what I've got for you guys today. Uh, if you guys want your water tested, uh, we are offering anybody at the event a totally complimentary water test. We bring our little lab kit out. It's like Bill Nye the Science Guy, but for water, and just let you know what's in your water. Um, but if you do get your water tested, just make sure to give your water techs a hard time because it makes me feel happy. So there's that for you. And we've got uh, little uh, QR codes across the tables. Questions, yes. Um, so we've got QR codes across the tables if you guys want to get your water tested or a sign-up sheet over there. What questions do you guys have? Yes. What makes the water disinfecting water? So I don't explain this right every time, so I'm going to let him do this. So um, ion exchange technology, in the platinum itself, there's little electrodes that split the water molecules, turning water into hydrogen triperoxide. So you buy those bottles of hydrogen peroxide. Imagine little electrodes attached in a little, uh, little box, and it literally turns your water into ozonated water. There's so much oxygen in the water that it kills bacteria, viruses, fungus, anything that smells bad on my yoga mat or my shoes. It literally kills it. And then over the next 20 minutes, the oxygen evaporates out of the water, and it turns back into regular water. You, you can, it's baby safe. Yeah, that's crazy. Ozonated water is technically the term, but it's just imagine so much oxygen in the water that it kills the bad stuff and then turns right back into water. That's why you can't buy it in the grocery store because they can't bottle it and sell it to you. You need a machine to do it. Yeah. Great question. Great question. Our friends have started bringing us all their dirty stuff and they're like, will you put this in your special water? And we're like, we'll put it in our special water. We call our clean water sexy water so you can make your call for yourself. But anyways, what other questions? Yes.
when you when you said that Monument had to shut down one of their uh, water treatment plants because they failed for four consecutive quarters, does that mean that they could fail for three quarters, pass one quarter, and fail for three quarters, and on and on, and never have to report it? Unfortunately, yeah. Right now, that is correct. I wish that it wasn't, but it, yes, the way that it stands, it is correct. Is that what they're doing? So the, the, the question was if the water treatment companies can fail three tests in a row, pass a fourth one, and then they don't have to tell you. That's 100% correct. So the only time the water treatment companies have to notify their customers that they failed a test is if they fail four quarters in a row. That's crazy, right? That's an entire year of them poisoning their customers before they have to tell anybody about it. The, the thing that worries us most is when you tell companies do those tests and report it to the EPA, there's no third-party company like us there verifying the test results. Who's to say they don't do a hundred tests in a row and pick the best one? There's no third-party verification. There's nobody there standing there holding their hand, making sure that the results they're giving are truthful and honest. That's why we rely on the, the WG, the Environmental Working Group, because they don't even warn the utility companies when they come into town. They surprise them, they publish the results, and there's nothing the utility companies can do about it other than say, hey, this is what they found in the water. Really good question. Really good. Other questions? Hey, oh, thank you guys so much. Let us know if you want to nerd out with us over water more. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate you much and we're super excited to team up with you for for best of the west wing fest all right so now we have our little trivia section that we like to do so we have our june edition of trivia um and there's a couple of pretty cool holidays that we have in the month of june that i decided to highlight today so we have our first question up oh, hold on hold on up oh, hold on so, first of all, raise your hands like good little boys and girls. Do not call out the answers. Don't do that. <laughs> and um, now we, it dawned on us to start handing out a prize, even if you get it wrong. If you get it wrong, you're going to get something. So there's something right here that's called an airhead. And that's what you're going to get if you get the question wrong. So if you don't, you're going to get these cute little bags full of nerds and other cute, cute nerdy things. All right. So remember, raise your hands. What is the oldest known holiday that commemorates the end of slavery in the U.S.? Yes, ma'am. Juneteenth. Which this weekend, there is a free Juneteenth festival, three-day festival, Friday, Saturday, Sunday in downtown. So make sure you guys go and check it out. Yes. Then we have, what state failed to inform its slaves about the Emancipation Proclamation? No, not Mississippi. Texas. Texas. All right. And the last question for this round. How many months 
passed between President Lincoln's signature of the Emancipation Proclamation and when the slaves in Texas were finally freed. Higher. Higher. Lower. Higher. Higher. All right. Higher. Oh, hold on. Oops, I'm going backwards. Wait a minute. I'll give you guys the answer. 30 months. So the slaves in Texas didn't know they were free for over two years until the Union troops rode into Galveston, Texas and announced enslaved peoples were free on June 19, 1865. So, yes, that's some pretty interesting information there. So now I've been checking out our Instagram and I see some people following, I see some people commenting, but I can see more. So make sure you keep on going ahead and doing this so that you can get a WingFest ticket. And uh, that is it for now. So you'll have a few minutes to go ahead, refill your drinks, grab some more food, and we shall be back with presenter number two, Miss Lisa Hatfield. <laughs> Everybody. I don't have to scream long, but I do need to change Excuse him one moment. Yes, I have an echo. <laughs> he has an echo. <laughs> We're getting ready. All right, everybody. All right, everybody. Let's put our hands together for me. Forward <laughs> <laughs> is, is down. So I'm Lisa Hatfield. I am just a regular civilian. And I'm here to tell you about a story of hope, about things you really can do, even when you get home tonight, so that you can be safer when a wildfire comes here. I want you to cheer, because it's going to be all positive news. Let's see. And then, when I, the, so this is the, the, the story of the flying ember, wildfire, and you. And I've also written a novel that has real people in it and stuff called To Starve an Ember. And by the time we're done tonight, you're going to understand why you need to starve those embers to keep your house safe. But, to, but this story is about the actual ember itself, and he's the main character. So it's a story of hope for you. So it's a tale of hope about how we can adapt again to living with wildfires by controlling the fuels on our property, on your private property. You don't want anybody else to come there and do that for you. You want to do it yourself. Once upon a time, a smoldering ember lived in a stone-lined fire pit dug into the earth. This flying ember, this living bit of charcoal, lived happily with the people for 10,000 years. It was part of the community, and it was loved and appreciated. The people could not imagine life without the flying ember. 
They kept the fire alive throughout the seasons and the centuries. When they moved from one camp to another, they carried live embers with them, nestled inside a bison horn coated with mud and sealed with a stone. The embers were vital to them. The fire represented continuity with all the generations of their ancestors. They used fire to parch seeds and nuts and cook food. It helped them through the harsh winter weather, and they gathered around its warmth to visit and tell stories. They used frequent low-intensity fires to manage the landscape for a specific species of plants and animals and to hunt deer, elk, and antelope. And this routine fire restored the land by encouraging new life and getting rid of dead vegetation. Every year when the weather and the wind were just right, it was the flying embers' job to start a prescribed burn when the people set it free. Every year, several million acres burned and no one was upset. In fact, they were happy with the flying ember for helping them so much. That's how it was supposed to be. In the prairies, it made room for native plants to push through the tough root systems. The fire crawled along through the pine needles with a low flame, and when it reached a tree, it would jump up the bark several feet and then drop down again and keep going. It was doing its job. The pine cones opened to let new conifer seedlings grow, and the ashes of the old plants returned nutrients to the soil. The fire loved to burn, clearing out the prairie, the understory, and the woody brush. Since they burned regularly, there wasn't too much fuel, and the fire's temperature was low and didn't damage the earth. It just burned a patch coming up against last year's burn scar on this side and on the other side the patch where it burned the year before that, making a mosaic pattern. The fire was not a catastrophe. It was a useful tool. The ember liked that, being part of the way nature intended all things to work together for good, even fires. It liked being alive. All it needed to stay alive was fuel, oxygen, and heat. If it ran out of fuel or oxygen or got too cold, it would starve, suffocate, and die. But with a little bit of fine, dry fuel, it thrived and it could kindle a warm fire with just a few sparks. Eventually, the people who held the flying ember in such high esteem, the people who lived as a team with the landscape, had to move away. Most of the new people who moved onto the land saw fire in the prairie or in the trees only as a destructive force that started by accident. They didn't know how the fire could help make the ecosystem healthier. Whenever a fire started, the people stopped it right away because they were afraid and because their houses were now in its path. They didn't realize that the fuel was piling up as the vegetation kept growing. No small fires were allowed to keep burning or to clear out the fuel on a regular basis. They decided to stop all the fires because they were all bad. This was called fire suppression policy. So the flying ember went into hiding. It was a fugitive now. It had a bounty on its head. The fire didn't get to clean up the prairie or the forest. Every seedling, weak or strong, 
struggled beside its neighbors. Dog hair thickets of pines clumped up and every tree tried to grow to be a mature pine tree. And so instead of just a few healthy pine trees per acre, now there were 300 or even 500. But because they were all squished together and had to compete with each other for water and sunlight, they looked like lollipops, tall sticks with clumps of branches only growing at the top. Meanwhile, the people built more towns in places where there never had been towns before. They built log cabins with cedar shake roofs and wooden decks. They built clapboard cabins and put their wood piles next to them to help them get through the winter. And the ember looked at all of them and smacked its lips, saying, Fuel, I am so hungry. Just like, have all that fuel, I could burn a bigger fire than I have ever burned before. No one could stop me. But the ember didn't get a chance to eat. Fires did start from human mistakes or from lightning. And the crews put them out as quickly as they could, wherever it was. Even if it was in the middle of a thousand square miles of wilderness without a house for a hundred miles. But they also stopped doing ecological management. The trees in the forest got more densely packed. The woodlands replaced the prairies, making native flowers less available to the pollinators. There was less diversity in the ecosystem. It didn't get the reset it needed since the low-intensity fires weren't happening as frequently. And the years went by. New people nestled more of their permanent houses in amongst the trees, perched on top of scenic mountaintops and ridges and along curvy roads full of switchbacks that had only one road in and one way out. And about three-quarters of the homes that were destroyed by wildfires caught on fire because of the flying ember and its buddies. Meanwhile, the new people thought they had to let all living things grow so they could be natural. But it was actually very unnatural to stop all the fires, which would weed out the excess vegetation. Every once in a while, a fire did start, and it had no choice but to become a severe one that the fire crews could put out, could not control. It became a mega fire. The emperor and all its friends went crazy after having nothing to eat for so long. And when they finally got a chance, they gobbled up mile after mile of forest and homes. Woo-hoo, we have so much to eat and we are having the best time. The embers sailed for miles ahead of the forest fire or the grass fire, picking up more burning brands as bushes, trees, and grass ignited and became more sparks. They had such fun, leapfrogging ahead, carried aloft by the superheated air. And the embers didn't care as they raced forward, landing on the ground, on the roofs, on the porches, and all they could do was look for fuel to eat. And they found so much. The fire burned hotter than it used to because there was so much fuel. And because it was so hot, it melted the minerals in the soil and made it like ceramic. When the fire went out and the rain came, the hydrophobic soil could not absorb the water that used to sink down into the dirt. So the runoff swept through, scouring out deep erosion channels and stealing all the topsoil from the surface. So all that was left was rock. Tree branches, roof shingles, 
and even squirrels, turned into flying, burning embers of all sizes. The fire scooped up embers from the ground and whirled them into the air, sometimes developing into a fire NATO. The flying ember didn't feel good inside about that, but it couldn't figure out what to do differently. Its job was to eat. As small as a spark and as big as a red-tailed hawk, the embers flew through the air and landed everywhere. The ember blizzards blew into all the nooks and crannies. Adventure is out there, yelled the flying ember. So many places to explore. You know, just in the United States, there were now 43 million homes snuggled into the trees and the prairie. The embers could land on those homes and in the yards. And in Colorado, it's 50% of the homes. In the overgrown forest, instead of just creeping along the ground, they lit the scrub oak bushes and the fire climbed up that ladder fuel into the treetops. And the people said the sound of the fire was like louder than a freight train. On the houses, does this look familiar? The burning embers had no problem finding something to munch on. Sometimes they could smolder in piles of pine needles or leaves, and they could easily ignite and make progress gobbling up the rest of the house. And the new houses, for built of sticks, surrounded by a forest of sticks, were just more fuel for the embers when they blew in on the gusts of air from a faraway wildfire. The neighborhood was like a giant smorgasbord of delicacies if they could just take that first bite in the fine, dry fuel. The blizzard storms of sparks swirled up and under the eaves. The lucky ones sailed through the chinks in the armor of the house and they entered right into the attic through the roof vent or they entered the bedroom by melting the plastic window screen. Then more embers followed through the gap and landed on the carpet, the bed, in the closet, and they started new fires. The yummy juniper bushes, yummy, next to the houses, they made such tall, beautiful flames when those flammable oils ignited, and they spread as more embers themselves. So many new friends for the embers and such a party atmosphere. If the window above the juniper was closed, the radiant heat cracked the glass and sent in more stormtroopers into the living room. The ember storms blew around the house. Under the front steps where all the leaves were piled up just like tinder for a campfire. And there they snuggled in warm and cozy with dry leaves to eat and air to breathe. They ignited easily and started eating the wooden steps or the edges of the wood siding. Finally, the people saw that their land and property was providing too much fun for the flying embers. People realized they couldn't prevent the embers from existing any more than they could stop the rain or a hurricane or an earthquake. They had to adapt their communities so they could live with fire. They could not control the weather or the topography that drove the fires, but they could control one thing, and that was the fuel all around their homes and their private property and along the streets they need to evacuate when a fire came through. So they made changes in their communities to be prepared for the fire. The people made it so sometimes the embers couldn't survive at all. 
where the embers and sparks fell on a road or a metal roof or a sidewalk, there wasn't any fuel. Now, the flying ember didn't like it when the people did what this is called home hardening. Because of this change in philosophy, more and more of the houses survived the ember storms. The people started to get smart. They were learning how to coexist with the fire and the flying ember. If the ember landed on a wooden deck, it might smolder a while up against the house. But if the siding was metal or plasterboard, that was as far as the ember could get. The people made sure the embers could not sneak in the vents and the eaves because they installed metal mesh in this uh, metal mesh screening and they cocked up the open edges. Hey, said the flying ember as it pounded itself against the metal mesh. I can't get in here anymore. They replaced their flammable roofs with ones that were metal or tile or class A asphalt fiberglass shingles. They replaced loose shingles to prevent ember penetration underneath the roof. They cleaned the roofs and gutters of the dead leaves, debris, and pine needles that could catch and feed those hungry embers. Hey, where's dinner? I'm starved, said the flying ember. In the fire-adapted communities, people were nowhere nearby when the fire actually came because they evacuated to a safe distance. They knew their home could try to defend itself against the flying embers by starving them because the people created defensible space, kind of like a moat around their home ignition zone. So within five feet of the house, there was a fuel-free zone. The flying ember could not find anything to eat, no wood mulch, woody plants, firewood piles, or old lumber that, would, that could trap the blowing leaves. As long as there was nothing for the ember to eat close to the house, it could not catch the house on fire. Look at those beautiful firefighters just raking pine needles. I hope you do that when you get home. The people kept the grass watered close to the house, depriving the flying embers of another food source. The ember might set some bushes on fire, but in the end, fire could not go straight to the house because the vegetation was, get this, discontinuous in a mosaic pattern in the home ignition zone up to 30 feet from the house. So from the house and working outward, um, oops, the, let's see, <laughs> the people realized that they needed to do forest management if they didn't want the fire to do the forest management for them. Not all the seedlings could grow up. The people had to make sure there was not a line of fuel that could draw the fire toward the house. So look at this. There's a 10-foot gap in between the crowns of the trees. That's really important. People made sure that around their homes, the landscape was beautiful, but it was much less likely that the flying ember could find anything to eat when it landed there. They put the right plants in the right places, ignition-resistant plants that were full of moisture, and the pollinators and the birds were thrilled. There was nowhere the flying embers could hide and smolder in the home ignition zone, and the house had a lot less chance of catching fire and burning down. They had managed the vegetation and hardened their homes.
The people let the flying ember work for them again, out in the national forests and grasslands, too. The flying ember would live another 10,000 years, and it looked forward to helping keep diversity in the ecology. When the flying ember got to a forest or grassland that was full of houses, those properties were now part of the fire-adapted community. The firefighters didn't have to rush over there to try and save the houses. The people knew the fire would come, but the houses themselves were not yummy to the ember anymore because there was no fuel for it to eat right around there. Instead, the fire kept going around the houses, doing its job to renew the earth and the vegetation, and the flying ember got its wish to be loved and appreciated again. The end. <laughs> so, and this is wildfire in you. Yeah, the, this is the story of the flying ember. So you've learned that with wildfire, you can control is the fuel. And then this is my novel, To Starve an Ember, which is also about the same thing. It gives a lot more examples, and it's set in a landscape that might look very familiar to people who are from Colorado Springs Monument. Um, you can download a free copy of, if you want to share this presentation that I just gave to other people, you can download it for free and share it, share it with other people. Oh, yeah, questions. Questions? Kate has a question. Where do you go to get an evaluation of your house? That's a great question. I would recommend talking to your local fire district. They will send somebody out to come and look at your specific property. You can also send them pictures of your property. If you take pictures around the corner of your house from 30 feet out, looking at all four corners, and send it to your local fire department, they will give you a very good idea of what, where you should start to make your house safer. Any more questions? Yes? Oh, what got me passionate about fires? Well, I've lived in Colorado for 30 years, and the first wildfire that my husband and I saw was while we were sitting on our deck eating sandwiches. And as we're watching the grass fire burn toward us, we're just still eating our sandwiches. And finally we said, maybe we ought to call 911 or something. We just didn't understand about fires. And in the time then, we've had four major fires right around us that rained ashes right our decks. And we've learned so much since then that there really are things that we can do to be safer. And we, I want to share that information with everybody else. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lisa. So PSA... I'm going to say, so Flip and I, as some of you might know, we are new to Colorado Springs. We moved here uh, next month. It'll be two years that we've been living here. We moved from Miami. This fire business, we were not prepared for this. We had no idea anything about it. It scared the, the Jesus out of me. And did you know that Colorado Springs Fire Department has events? They have, like, uh, com not a conference, but they have, like, all meetings that you can go to, that you can sign up for, you can go to, and you can learn about the things that you can do to stay safe. Um, now, Flip and I, 
went to the one on the west side because that's where we live and we're the youngest ones there so that's kind of saying a lot so you know fires is not an old people thing fires is not a young people thing fires is an everyone thing so we all need to show interest in this we all need to learn about it if we all learn about it and do things about it we everyone benefits from it so that's my two cents on fire um nerd trivia round two last night uh we have uh oop, hold on there's another holiday that shares with juneteenth this year which is father's day so i decided to make our next present our next uh trivia about father's day again reminder raise your hands like good little children and i will call on you for the answer all right question number one what is the name of the film in which the lead dad character journeys to 42 wallaby way sydney to find his son <laughs> yes finding nemo i was so happy when i read that one um all right so finding nemo Question number two. Who does Robin Williams play in the film about a divorced dad who disguises himself as an aging female Scottish housekeeper? Yes, Mrs. Doubtfire. Who doesn't love that? While fighting his own father in the Cloud City, which hand does Luke Skywalker lose? No. <laughs> Who has the right answer? It's, it's the right hand. It's the right hand. <laughs> All right. Boom. And actually, I read that lucky for Luke Skywalker, or lucky for Mark Hamill, which is the actor that played Luke Skywalker, he was ambidextrous. So he could be seen... Um, in uh, on set, eating with one hand and then fighting with he with the other hand. So that was pretty cool little tidbit of information. Um, again, Instagram. I've seen like 18 new follows on our Instagram, and I know in 40 of you tonight. So I mean, come on. There's there's something going on here. Um, you've got. One last chance to like and comment on one of our pictures on, on Instagram, uh, at NerdNightCOS. And um, we have break number two happening. And uh, you'll have a few more minutes to grab another drink, get some more food, and we shall be back with our final presenter, Grant Dewey. Let's put it little bit more. All right, who's ready for our last nerd of the evening? All right, I'm glad you guys stayed. I don't know what happened. I don't know if everybody went for a hike or something because there's still light out there. But uh, we will take all the nerds we can get. There it is. All right. So with that, let's welcome Grant Dewey to the stage, the executive director of the Western Museum of Mining and Industry. Thank you, thank you. Oh. Down is up. Okay. Good evening, everyone. If you can hear me, raise your glass. 
If you can hear me, raise your glass. Okay, awesome. Thanks for being here. If you have been to the Western Museum of Mining and Industry, go ahead and take a drink out of your glass. You earned that. For sure, for sure. So I guess I better do a little tech here. There we go. Sorry. So tonight, what the heck is Houston? So if you have some inklings, if you already know, then just be patient for a little bit as we go through the process. So just to give you a little background about the Mining Museum, we're all about education, but we also do things besides mining. We talk about ranching and some other industries and a lot of local history. So notice our building has changed a little bit. This is really fun. Have you guys seen some of the murals around town? Everybody seen some of the murals around town? Aren't they so cool? So a little secret, is there anybody from the city or the county in here that works in the government? Oh, okay, then I can't say this, never mind. I'll, I'll tell you later. But anyways, it's a really good idea to do murals. Just, I'll give you that hint. So another piece on our 28-acre campus is this really cool Queen Anne Victorian-style home built in the late 1880s. So this is called the Reynolds Ranch House. Reynolds was a Civil War vet who came out to build this house. And if you don't know, this is our neighborhood. So let's see if I can, is there a little late? Oh, look at that, okay. So all these blue lines, that's all the construction that happened. That's the new powers interchange that we all get to enjoy now. Do you guys like that? It's kinda nice, right? Kinda slick? Someday this will happen. See the yellow lines? That will be powers coming through Flying Horse all the way over to the highway. And we are right here. We are Bass Pro's neighbor. So that's where we live. Let me do a little demographic, because Marita might like this. Raise your hand if you're from the south end of town. South end of town? Okay, downtowners? Downtowners? Okay, downtowners. How about Westsiders? There we go. Excellent. North side, north side. Okay, pretty even mix. Very good. So, Houston. Houston was a little town along the old highway, and it was really close to where we are today. So Houston is named after, oops, sorry. This gentleman right here, he is the great-grandson of Calvin Houston, started the little town. This gentleman happens to be at the Air Force Academy. He's one of amazing historian. So these are just some of the pictures of Houston that we'll talk about. So what happened to Houston? Well, in the late 50s, the Air Force Academy came through, and as you probably realize, they bought out thousands and thousands of acres. And in that process, I think they removed over 600 buildings of some kind, mostly outbuildings, probably barns and sheds and that sort of thing. But they also removed basically two towns. One of them was Houston. The other one was called Edgerton. Raise your hand if you've been on the Santa Fe Trail. Santa Fe Trail folks. Have you been by like the ice lakes? You ever notice where the ice lakes are? 
Okay, I think it's a good place to know if you ever need a porta potty, there's normally one there. Okay, so the Ice Lakes, that's where Edgerton was, and their job, their town, was basically to produce ice out of the lakes to put in the rail cars to keep things cool. Okay, Oop. so I think I jumped ahead, sorry about that. Oh my gosh, wow. So we can see from these old articles that Houston basically was removed. It was about two to 300 people at its peak, so it wasn't massive, right? But in those days, about every 10 miles along the railroad track, there was a little town for water or ice or maybe fuel or whatever else they might need. Houston was actually a pretty cool little spot. They had lumberjacks, they had farmers and ranchers, and so they produced and put a lot of things on the train So here you see the sad story of Houston, that it was removed from the Air Force Academy. This is kind of an interesting little comment down here. Thousands of Air Force Academy cadets, and then they go as far to say, oh my gosh, sorry, that maybe they won't even care that Houston was there. That seems kind of odd, but I think they actually did. Do we have any Air Force Academy grads here by chance? Awesome. So I'm thinking when you came out the North Gate, if you were sneaking out and you got to the Reynolds Ranch House, you were safe because you were off of the property. All right, raise your hand if you've ever driven on I-25. Raise your other hand if you've been on the Air Force Academy. All right. Now the question is when you're on Air Force Academy and you're driving through on I-25, whose property are you on? Anybody want to guess? We might have a nerd packet if you get this one right. I'll give you two. Yes, ma'am. Okay, that's a great guess because it could be Air Force Academy or CDOT. Which one do you think it is? The railroad. That's another great guess. Okay. Actually, CDOT has a long-term land lease from the Air Force Academy. So you're really still on the Air Force Academy property as you're zipping along on CDOTs. So you may recognize this. This is up by the North Gate, looking kind of south. If you're a cyclist or a runner, this is really close to the trailhead there at North Gate. And so the guard gate would be like over here. Houston, or I should say, actually one of the Houstons, because I just found out recently there were two. Oh, my gosh, sorry. Every time I, there we go. So look at this. The post office has not forgotten there was a Houston. Isn't that funny? So they still use that today. So here are the two Houstons. So our property's right here. This is Northgate, right? Here's the Santa Fe Trail. So that was Houston East. So Houston East was on the old Santa Fe Railroad. Houston West was on the, what's the other one called, everybody? Anybody know the other railroad that used to be there? Oh, did it go? Dang, sorry. I just heard it. Very good, yes. Denver and Rio Grande. Excellent. So, yes, we used to have two railroads, 
And so raise your hand if you remember when those were both active. Anybody was here when they were both still active? All right, very good. Do you remember what year that was, sir? About 68, 69. Super. Can we give this guy nerds for having that? That's, that's awesome. So he actually rode on the train, that Santa Fe Trail. So this is on the current Santa Fe Trail, the trail, and it explains about Houston East. Okay? So if you haven't seen that, you can keep an eye out for it next time you're out there. So this is, as you can tell, this is from May of 58. This is basically our property for the museum. There's the old interchange highway, or the brand new, I guess. Remember the cloverleaf? Anybody remember the cloverleaf? Okay. So the guardhouse would be right about here. Houston 1 and Houston 2 are over in here. In fact, there is Houston West. So Houston West was basically removed, and part of what they did there was put in the cement plant for all of the production to build the Air Force Academy. So that was pretty much completely removed. Just a couple other little pieces about Houston. So you can see it had lots of little buildings. You can see the railroad track following the river along there. This is part of the old highway. This is Houston getting bigger. There's a church and a school. There's the old 8587. Some of you may have taken that before as well. And this is the Houston Railroad. I think this is Houston West, if I remember right. I think this is the Denver Rio Grande. One thing about the railroad is they took really good documentation. So we have lots of information about what Houston was like. And so it gives you wonderful details there. And even here, it gives you a description of all the buildings that were in this little town and what they were for. So this one, just a little personal side note. So I grew up in the monument area when it was so small that we only had a 2A high school. So a little different than today. Um, but when I pulled this information up and saw this name, it cracked me up. Lucille Levitt was a family friend of ours. We went to church together. I was a tiny little kid and she was an elderly lady. But I remember the Levitt family. Another little picture from Houston. And there she is again. She must have done a great job. Ooh, remember those old telephone poles like that? That was a while ago. And this was another personal surprise. I grew up with the Seidel's grandchildren. We went to school together. I had no idea he was involved in this whole business around Houston and some of the other towns. All right, so this is where this whole thing connected for me. So on our campus, our 28 acres, this is the Reynolds Ranch House. The, the house and the barns and the bunkhouses that we have on our campus are actually the last remaining buildings of the town of Houston, east in that case. So it's really a fun little piece of history 
invite all you guys to come out and visit that. In fact, if you want to come to the campus, I do have like discount coupons so I can hand those out later if you want some. If you like history, I'll quickly give you an idea about the Reynolds Ranch House. So it was built in the 1880s, right? So this was part, the original ranch was part of the land grab, right? Or the Homestead Act. And then Mary Tubbs purchased it and she sold it to Sarah Reynolds who was Joseph's wife. We don't know why in that time period Sarah would have purchased it instead of Joseph, unless it was some other tax thing or whatever. We haven't been able to figure that out. Kind of interesting, though. And then in the late 1890s, they built the house and the barns. So they had it for a few years, and then instead of just flat-out selling it, it was kind of odd, they put an ad in an Arkansas newspaper in the county they wanted to move to, and they just said, does anybody want to swap a ranch in Colorado? And they actually got a response, and that's how they did it. So they moved down there, and it was kind of fun to have the great-grandson come out and visit. And he walked into barns on our property, and he said, these are identical to the ones that they built in Arkansas that are still standing 130 years later. So this is another little piece of local trivia, Lazar Khan. Lazar Khan lived in that house, and he happens to be the gentleman who started the Colorado Springs Mineralogical Society and had a mineral named after him, Khanite. And I thought this was kind of fun. So then Maria Porter bought it, and she ran a, women, a girls' school here in Colorado Springs. And then eventually we got it in the late 70s. So... This is the hay barn, 1893, the house and the bunkhouses. And then we do really fun outdoor events around the property. So I invite you guys to come out and try that. For example, this weekend, uh, the Celtic Festival is on our campus, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So there you go. Houston, the only remains are the Reynolds Ranch House, basically. Thank you guys very much. Questions? Questions? Yes, ma'am. Why did we? So we didn't show it before. The location was right over today. Remember where I showed you Powers is going to come through on those yellow lines through Flying Horse? That was actually our first location was right over there. And then they bought the property there at the intersection of I-25 and Northgate, I assume, just for better location. So there was never, one of the questions that comes up, was there mining there? There was never actually mining on that site. Okay. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. How do you get involved with, like, the mining museum and such or the Reynolds Ranch House? By the way, somebody's going to do gardening, right? Did somebody say something about gardening? We would love to have help with gardening at the Reynolds Ranch House with our Queen Anne Victorian-style raised beds and all that. We have lots of opportunity for volunteers if you'd like to do anything from just an event volunteer or helping to run some of our special equipment that we do, or being a docent, if you like being a tour guide, all that sort of thing. Thank you for asking. Other questions? Other questions? Cool. Raise your beer. Well done. We finished. Thank you so much, Grant and the museum for coming and 
showing us a little bit of history of Colorado Springs and what makes us unique. That is something that we like to showcase here at Nerd Night. Um, so, where is my Vanna White? <laughs> where is the ticket and the chicken? All right, so I'm going to choose must be present to win at random who is going to have a free ticket to the wing fest <laughs> all right this is this is pretty awesome all right doc ivan 05 this gentleman over here who i happen to hear was from buffalo new york so he's extremely interested in our wing fest. Yeah, thank you so much. Congratulations. All right. So with that being said, let me put away the phone. Boom. Next Nerd Night at Kawadi, Wednesday, July 20th. Beard, nerds, trivia, fun times. Come, be there, be square. Uh, keep on the lookout on our Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash nerdnightcos, Instagram at nerdnightcos, follow, like, review, share us with other nerds, with other friends, please. Um, we appreciate you, that very, very much. We try to be as active as possible. We try to um, uh, post a couple times a week at least so that you have some cool stuff to follow. Um, again, if you have any presenting ideas, nerdnightcos at gmail.com. Go ahead and send us an email and we will get back to you. Next awesome community event, Flip mentioned it earlier, is Memoirs, True Stories Unfiltered. So that is a true storytelling event. People get up on stage. They share 15, 20 minute version of a portion of their life related to a theme. And the theme this month is, uh, what is normal? What is normal? Again, coming up this summer, as you guys know, uh, it's, uh, Best of the West Wing Fest, promo code for you wonderful nerds that did not get to win your ticket. You get 10% off. Nerd Night COS is your promo code. So visit us at bestofthewestwingfest.com, enter the promo code, and you'll get 10% off of your ticket. That is all. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great night. See you next time. See you uh, at Memoirs on the 27th.